0: After 13 years in business, U.S. Cyber Command plans an expansion. In the works, a new intelligence center to collect international cyber intelligence data. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore got details on why they need that new center from Cyber Command's Colonel Candace Frost.
1: General Martimucci, the J-2 of Cyber Command, um, understood and started to work with the Defense Intelligence Agency that there was a gap in the information shared with us from um, the wonderful intel shared from the NSA, National uh, Security Agency, but we really needed an all-source approach from the Department of Defense side. And so as each of the services have their own intelligence center, There was just a a gaping hole, space set up its own, but cyber didn't have one. And so how this will unfold is still, it's a work in progress. The mission analysis portion is done. Um, It passed through the Defense Intelligence Agency and now it's at um, the broader DOD and going going forward to Congress. But we've really done a true understanding and mission analysis of where those gaps are in both foundational intelligence and also in science and technology. And both of those areas are are holes that we had in our swing and we'll have to stand up an organization, a unit, some type of function that will be able to cover that.
2: So when did this start? How long has it already been in progress? So I think the
1: concept, the need has been there for a very long time, but the concept itself really got underway about about a year and a half ago. And we were able to get it passed through um, uh, the machinations of of understanding and, you know, really inputs from different intel centers, and then it it passed through in February out of the DIA.
2: Sort of in plain explanation, what happens next? It passes out of the DIA, then what happens?
1: Then what happens, well, like anything in our system, it's got to go through... And specifically, um, get congressional funding, and they have said, is this necessary? I think um, both uh, our Department of Defense leaders are grappling with what this will look like, the shape and size, the workforce itself, the funding levels, the titles and authorities. All of those things need to be roadmapped out. It's just that we have validated that the need exists, and it's going forward.
2: So how do you envision it in its mature phase as, as a fully realized program? Wow,
1: that, um, that will be left to the next generation that takes this torch forward. Um, because there are so many different inputs that, that will have to come forward. The size, the shape, the location, all of those things are still truly um, not defined. And the people that move forward with this will
2: be able to really shape what it looks like. Are there recommendations for those things at this point?
1: Absolutely, there are recommendations. I think there are recommendations from different parts of the intelligence community, and there are recommendations from the Department of Defense as well, those operators that need this um, information and intelligence. And so each of them will kind of come together. And then at the end of the day, um, Congress is the one that provides a budget and really a framework for what it will look like and how it will service the DOD in the future.
2: And what about the workforce? You mentioned that a little bit. Yeah, the workforce
1: itself, I think we'll have, um, because it will be a defense intelligence agency organization, primarily funded by analysts through through there, um, we'll also have a mixture of science, science and technology experts. It's got to really un, uh, underlay both the foundational layer of you know, our entire network and where, we're at, where we are at at looking at the the ecosystem and then on the other side where the science and technology where are we looking next Um, and those people that can really get into the nitty-gritty details of um, the
2: space that we exist in so it would be a combination of uniform and civilian employees more than likely yes mostly civilian or what do you think
1: I think if you look at any of the structures that are already in existence, um, a great example is the National Ground Intelligence Center. They're primarily comprised of civilians um, with military leadership. So if it mirrors any of NASIC, NGIC, even what space has set forward, um, primarily civilians.
2: All right, and kind of go through what they'll do in the center. So that
1: is also still underway. I think the two big pillars that we will look at is the foundational intelligence layer, and they will look um, similar. I'm making lots of comparisons to what's in existence already. Um, the National Ground Intelligence Center, when they look at foundational intelligence, they can tell you everything about a T-72 tank all the way to the nuts and bolts. Um, we've got to build something like that on our networks um, external when we're looking at nation-state actors. If we look at that with equipment, we've got to understand that for different types of um, networks and the equipment that feeds into those networks. So that that part will be in existence. And then the other side is the science and technology. If we look at an IP address, um, almost like a grid coordinate for the Army, Um, and compare those two, we've got to be able to understand where they are out there um, for dangerous threat actors that are trying to um, harm our systems.
2: So following along on that, you had mentioned there are some holes that this will fill. Can you be a little specific about what those holes you're looking to fill are? I think the, the biggest holes that we're looking to fill is, you
1: know, as we continually move in this space, so much of it is constantly changing, and so if we can get at least a depth of understanding, yeah, we can look at um, an air an Air Force platform that's been in existence for years, and you've been following um, this type of structure, their flight patterns. You know everything about this a threat actor and how they use this equipment. We don't have that necessarily in, in cyberspace. And so we'll have to do that with an all source uh, perspective out there. And that, that will build upon itself. Um, and then someone very forward leaning, you know, looking at the next generation and what's going forward. Th- those are the two big holes that it will fill. Next
2: generation, what are you seeing?
1: Ah, the next, the next generation, well, you know, what, uh, what's on everyone's mind right now is artificial intelligence and machine learning. And both of those are truly areas that we will also have to vector through because threat actors will use that space to their advantage and, and we will constantly look at that. Um, also in the, you know, defense is the new offense, how the defensive posture that we use in the DOD um, complements the work that Cyber Command does.
0: U.S. Cyber Command's Colonel Candace Frost speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking... Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
3: It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know
0: you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted presidency at Morgan, and on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his Board of Advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating
3: career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education
0: field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in
3: Influenced your leadership position now as President of Morgan State, it, it had to have had an impact, but how
0: would you articulate that so if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people my own brothers and sisters who were ten times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were illiterate, they never got an opportunity to show Went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader
3: or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you Remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life. In
0: 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Susulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart For anger or bitterness, and that was transformational for me. And why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
3: That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to
0: to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States, and then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. So that's sort of the way. That's I, sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that, that's you know.
3: <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. (laughs) David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.